Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to a Baseball America Draft Podcast. I am Carlos Colazzo, joined by Peter Flaherty. Today is August 18th. We've just got some huge, somewhat draft-related news today as we record this podcast. But what is going on, Peter? How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, so I'm fired up to be back on with you after a busy summer. Yeah, it has been a busy summer. We'll get into that a little bit. I think we're uh, we're very excited to start kind of reviewing the 2023 draft classes in a little bit, um, a little bit more extended fashion. It's always tricky to figure out how to really kind of close off a draft cycle because the draft happens then we immediately jump into next year's draft class and it almost feels like we can never fully tie the bow on the previous year's draft class but we're going to take some time over the next few weeks go over each division's draft class talk through players we liked overall draft strategy maybe some sleepers you like in the draft some sleepers i like in their draft class maybe maybe we don't like a certain draft class we'll we'll give you all our thoughts on that um i also wanted to talk a little bit about what we've been up to this summer since that is certainly draft related, although more for the 2024 class and maybe a few 2025 guys as well. Uh, but actually, really like an hour and a half before we got on this podcast, there was news that broke that the Angels were going to promote Nolan Shanuel to the major leagues. Jeff Passan had the news at around 11.30 a.m. this morning as we record this. Uh, they're calling him up. We heard leading up to the draft that the Angels wanted a fast-moving college player I don't think anyone expected whoever they took to to be in the big leagues in August, basically a month after the draft. And Shani Will got promoted to the big leagues before we even had our first podcast reviewing the 2023 draft. So it's it's pretty insane to just hear that, that happened. Um, what are your overall or your general thoughts, your first first impressions on that news, Peter? Pretty wild. Yeah, stuff. I mean, like you said, I was I was just as shocked as you were to to have our first big league call up before our first podcast. Um, but the angels have kind of shown in past drafts and especially in the last couple of years, they get aggressive with their guys. And I thought that with this, they went into the mindset of the first round and with their first pick of barring something unforeseen at their affiliates. Um, they wanted someone who they'd be able to call up within six to eight weeks and have an impact on their big league club. And, Nolan was exceptional, obviously, at Florida Atlantic. Um, hit four, nearly 450 with 71 walks to 14 strikeouts. Um, just video game-like numbers. Um, the contact and approach is obviously the calling card. And he had been doing similar, posting similar numbers um, at Rocket City and AA and obviously in the Empire for the 
two games he was there, I think it was, but still still doesn't yeah, miss played, basketball. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, he played 21 games of professional baseball prior to the announcement that he was getting called up. It was three games in rookie ball, two games, like you said, with Inland Empire and Low A, 16 games at Double A Rocket City. Overall, his line is 370, 510, 493. Obviously, with that OBP, the walk-to-strikeout ratio is still pretty elite. He's done that for a long time in college, but to see it translate to, again, still a very small sample in pro ball, 21 walks to 10 strikeouts. I had pulled up his draft report just to kind of read back over everything we had written about him. Um, and just like the career 7% strikeout rate, the overall contact rate of 89%. Every time we did one of those posts kind of breaking down hitting data for the college players, I feel like Shenny Well was just kind of off in the upper right corner by himself, maybe with a few other names. Um, so they clearly were targeting a guy with good offensive numbers. And, and like you said, he was one of the better hitters in college baseball. I, I voted for him as a Golden Spikes semifinalist. I don't, I don't think he made that cut um, with all the other voters, but I think it was certainly a conversation that everyone was having. Yeah. And, and through the taking out his three games at the complex, um, his overall contact rate um, throughout low A and double A was 87%. And then most impressively is in-zone contact rate right? when he swings at strikes. I mean, he he makes contact nearly every time. It's 94% overall contact rate um, against fastballs. Wow. In-zone contact rate of 96. Um, it's, I mean. That's really in line with his college numbers. His college numbers, I think this is overall college, all data we had available. His in-zone miss was 94%, or his in-zone contact was 94%. Uh, his fastball contact was 97%. So I, I would have expected those numbers to go down, but it's basically the exact same so far. Yeah, and, and I actually lied on the fastball one. His in-zone contact rate against heaters across low A and double A was 98%. Um, he swung in this one, <laughs> which is impressive beyond words. So it'll be really mm-hmm. exciting to see how it works out. Um, I'm Honestly, the, the Angels' method right now is – it's a little bit unforeseen with how aggressive they're getting with guys, namely Zach Neto um, and Nolan Shanwell, but Neto proved to be yeah. uh, an impact guy at the big league level. And it kind of reminds me of the quote of um, those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who couldn't hear the music and the angels are dancing. And I'm, I, I might just not be able to hear the music. So I'm really excited <laughs> to see what Shanwell does. Um, this is going to be a, I mean, it's hard to, to, to kind of word how tough of a test this is going to be going from Mm -hmm. the conference USA uh, and then 21 games at the minor league level now to the big leagues. Um, It's, it's going to be very, very, I think fun and interesting to see how it pans out and he's got nothing to lose. I mean, he should, Mm -hmm. um, he should go up there with, with kind of a a free headspace. Um, Obviously there'll be the nerves of that first big league call up, but, um, I think that whatever happens, he can be he can be very comfortable in because it's clear that um, already he's a he's an above average and an impact double A type of hitter um, at this stage. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think going back to the 2021 draft, the Angels have had the first player to reach the big leagues in each draft class. I believe that was Sam Bachman in 2021. In 2022, um, it was obviously Zach Neto. They have three players already in 2021 
to have made the big leagues from that draft class, Zach Neto, Ben Joyce, Victor Medeiros. There's only one other player from the 2022 draft class so far who's reached the majors. That's Wade Meckler with the Giants. And very shortly, we will have our first player from the 2023 class. That'll also be the Angels. Uh, J.J. Cooper put together some information just looking at like historically players, specifically hitters who have moved to the big leagues this quickly. It's basically a bunch of guys from the 70s, uh, along with Shanwell and Ryan Zimmerman in 2005. <laughs> so that's awesome. it's very clear what, what they're doing is just almost unprecedented. And the fact that if you look at the top 20 players all time, I should say top 20 hitters all time moving this quickly to the big leagues, the fact that Neto and Shanwell are both on this list and again, most of the players here is from the 70s when it was just a different era entirely in the game. So it's it's really hard to it's hard to process this, to be honest, because we always talk about oh, how the, the gap between college baseball and high school baseball in the majors is so huge and players need all this time to develop. And the Angels are just like, nope, we're taking the guys we like and we're going to push you quickly. You can develop in the big leagues. Um, this one's interesting, too, because I, I think Matt Eddy was saying Shane Well next year will still be eligible for the prospect promotion incentive, uh, just given the dates and, and his eligibility as a rookie for next year's draft. So if he, again, they're like 12 and a half games out, maybe it doesn't really matter for them this year, but if he gets some time, uh, gets acclimated to the big leagues, and then ne- next year does really well, they could still get a, a pick out of Shane Well for promoting him super quickly. So that's kind of cool. Um, and maybe another just element to mention here, but. I mean, if you were taking a player at 11 in this 2023 draft class, Peter, who you wanted to move quickly, would, would Shanwell have been the name? Because I think when I look back at this list of players, there are a lot of first basemen. And I think that makes some sense to some degree, because if you have a first baseman that you're taking this high and you're moving him quickly, presumably he's a pretty advanced offensive player. And maybe you just don't even need to worry too much about the defense with things. So you're just like, okay, he's playing a, a pretty low bar defensive position. We believe in the bat. He's just going to focus on hitting. That's his position. It's hitter. Is there a player that you think would have been a better fit uh, for this sort of process the Angels are going through? Or, or do you think Shanuel makes sense for this? That's a great question because if I'm picking at 11 and kind of picking on long-term high-end impact, I, I, I would have taken personally, and I know he went 12 the next pick, I probably would have gone with Tommy Troy Matt Shaw, um, compare shortstops out of Stanford, Maryland, respectively. But for this Angels mindset, and it's clear that they went, or I'd say pretty clear they went into this draft with, okay, whoever we take with our first pick, we're going to really, really expedite the process and push the envelope, get him in the bigs in the first six to 10 weeks, um, barring something unforeseen um, performance wise at our affiliates. So with that in mind, I probably would have taken Enrique Bradfield um, because I think that regardless of the bat and he's a high contact guy would probably be a a really low impact guy at the big league level right now, but -hmm. he can affect the game and have his fingerprints all over the box score with his borderline 80 grade defense and his 80 grade speed. Like that's a guy who will still be able to swipe bags at the big league level, both given his raw speed and his, his baseball sense and picking his spots to run. And the glove is already so polished. So I probably would have, I probably would have taken Bradfield there um, at mm-hmm. 11, but in looking at polished bats and, and kind of the, 
I'd say most big league ready bats right now. Yeah. Um, I've got a guy. I'm curious if you can guess who I would take. Oh, Braden Taylor. He did go on the, yeah, I think Braden Taylor, if I was doing this beforehand, I think Taylor would have been my guy because kind of in the same sense as, as Shane. Well, we're talking about just a very polished hitter at the college level. I thought all along Braden Taylor was one of the most polished hitters I'd seen again, not the most impactful player, I think we had average tools pretty much across the board for him. Um, and maybe the third base left side of the infield element of it is, is the degree of difficulty of that position in pro ball just makes the conversation even trickier. If you don't feel like you've got an above average power hitter at that spot, you need to feel good about both the defense and the offense. Maybe that's enough to make you feel less confident in the pick. Um, but Taylor would have been my guy just given his, the chase rate, the batting eye, his, his production for three years in a better conference, I think that's another element that's maybe interesting with this. We are talking about a player that came out of Conference USA. I mean, he didn't face the greatest pitching. I, I looked into the numbers just to see the average velocity he faced over three years. It was under 90 miles per hour, just under 90 miles per hour. But he also, in the sample of 93-plus mile per hour fastballs that he faced, he did quite well against that pitch type overall. Now, if you if you get a little bit more granular and you look at where those pitches were in zone, I'm very curious to see like how pitchers are going to attack him at the top of the zone. It seems like that could potentially be a weakness. He does have that pretty unusual high handset that looks a bit funky, but has always worked for him. So I'm really curious to see how he adapts to that pitch. Presumably all the, all the big league pitchers will be more effective, not only just throwing harder in general, but locating that velocity up at the top of the zone for strikes. So I'm curious to see how he's attacked in general, um, how he adjusts to that. And also maybe this will be another player where if he hits the ground running and I mean, it, it almost feels crazy to say this, but if he like holds his own at the major league level this quickly, like how it will change how we view players from non power five conferences. Like if we hold that against them too much when the data and the performance is just so good, like Shani Wells was over three years, really. Yeah. And that's a great point. And this adjustment um, from double a to the big leagues, no matter how well he's done double a is going to be, it's going to be a huge one. And like you said, um, that was kind of the, the area of his game. I was most wondering about too, is, is high velocity up in the zone. Um, you mentioned the setup, but so far so good for him. And when I saw him last summer um, on the Cape league, and I know that his stats aren't the the flashiest and you might just look at his baseball mm-hmm. reference page and I think it was a pretty average summer, but I was really impressed with the approach. The bat to ball skills were still, were still present. Um, and the, he ran into some unfortunate uh, batted ball luck that kind of hindered his mm-hmm. average. Flew up to the warning track a few times, had a lot of line drives right at guys. Um, so he was he was impressive in my look at him. So, uh, yeah. again, as he you hit, mentioned, go ahead. I was just going to say his line there since you're talking about it. He hit 200, 342, 272 in the Cape in 2022 with Hyannis, 36 games. Again, 24 walks to 24 strikeouts. And that makes me wonder, like, if you're pushing a guy this quickly, what is the most valuable skill for them to have to just to have some success? It might be just pitch recognition, swing decisions. Like the fact that even if he's not getting balls to fall, there's a pretty good chance that he's going to take his walks and get on base um, has to create some sense of security or some sense of offensive floor. Um, again, I don't think he's the biggest power hitter in this class. He's always been talked about as a hit over power guy. Even if he's not hitting for a ton of power, like you have to feel at least somewhat good that that skill will translate i'm curious what is like the skill that is most easy to translate from the minor to the majors um without any sort of like long learning curve but 
I would imagine that that would be one of them that I would pick out pretty quickly. Yeah, no, and and that's a good point. I I, I do think that they're putting a clear emphasis on pitch recognition, uh, swing decisions, and he's he's for sure hit over power. There's an argument that he's maybe the most polished hitter um, in this year's draft class um, in in terms of sheer polish. I know that that's a a bold statement with guys like Dylan Cruz and Wyatt Langford up at the top, but um, yeah, what he's he done is been exceptional. And if he can, and if he can take his walks and move the baseball consistently, um, you know, that's, I think a decent recipe um, to, to have some degree of success. Um, and I will find mm-hmm. out soon enough. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talking about like small conference guys, like this is the second time that the angels have done this. Zach Neto, played at Campbell. He was not at a big conference. I know there were some questions like, oh, like how reliable is the batter ball data with a guy like Neto? We'd be much more impressed with it if it was a Power 5 conference. But, I mean, he's in the midst of a big league career, close to league average as a hitter, as a 22-year-old, um, one year out of being drafted. So clearly the Angels feel like they can do some damage with these smaller conference hitters with just phenomenal track record, both in, in terms of traditional back-of-the-baseball-card stats and batter ball data. Because uh, both these guys really impressed for for those, so I'm really curious to see how he's going to look, what the reaction is going to be around the league. I know a lot of Angels fans are are excited. Some are a little skeptical of this move. I've already heard from some people wondering if is this desperation, but I don't really know. I haven't really kept up as much with the MLB race, but it, it seems like the Angels are almost already out of it. Um, I guess never say never, but if if Chaney Well <laughs> came up and powered the Angels to. Uh, surprising playoff berth that would be pretty tremendous um but let's dig into some non-shanewell news now peter i just finished up the high school showcase circuit with area code games and the baseball factories all-america game you've been busy uh on the cape over the last few weeks and maybe even months plural at this point uh so what have you been up to lately and do you have any initial brief first thoughts on the 2024 class because it is very early in the 2024 cycle. We'll have plenty of time to get in depth and we are trying to tie a bow on 2023, but I'm curious if there's anything that jumps out to you, whether that's players, whether that's the class itself or, or anything that you took away from the amount of time you spent on the Cape watching some of the best college players in the country. Yeah. So I went straight from college coverage and in two weeks in Omaha, um, even before Omaha, I was on the Cape, but went from two plus weeks in Omaha down to the Cape for the summer um, covering the Cape league and, well, I'm still a firm believer, and I don't think this will change regardless of, of how these guys do this spring, that the 2023 class is, I'd say, clearly deeper and, and perhaps better at, across the board than the 2024 class. Um, I think there are really, really impressive bats at the top, um, namely Travis Bazana and J.J. Weatherholt, not to get too into it and um, dig too deep on these guys, but Bazana dominated the league. Um, really unlike anyone else I had seen hit 375 with 14 extra base hits walked as much as he struck out stole 15 bases um, make up his elite and then Weatherholt only had a handful of games but made the most of it and um, another guy that I I walked away really impressed with was Hyannis third baseman Cam Smith already has a big league body looks the part when he's getting off the bus um, it went through some freshman growing pains, um, as every single freshman in college baseball does um, at Florida State, but is a really unique case in the fact that he actually flourished 
um, in his time up on the Cape as opposed to getting eaten up more and, and being exposed more. I mean, he hit 347 with 12 doubles, six home runs, took home the top pros- top pro prospect award, um, and, and rightfully so with Bazzano winning the MVP. He's got a plus arm at third. The approach really improved, um, lets his hands work. Um, I think working with Tino Martinez helped out a lot there. Um, and I think he established himself also as a first rounder. Um, and then the a sleeper guy that I met, we mentioned a little bit in our 2024 draft meeting um, who really burst onto the scene is, is two way. He's a true two way guy too, in my mind. Um, Cole Mathis from college of Charleston hit 320, 10 doubles second in the league in both home runs and RBIs with 11 and 42 respectively up to 96 on the mound with a plus curveball. Um, with some teeth to it it's really easy backspin to all fields gets the ball up in the air and man his his hands just explode through the zone and he's a guy i'm excited about jonathan vastein as well so um i'd say it was a a hitter centric league um there were some arms i i came away impressed with uh cam hill from georgia tech uh one pitcher of the year for katuit 1.09 era with 45 k's and 33 innings really good summer um, athletic left-hander, six-six, some good clay there and projectability, split change, flash plus, uh, slider was above average, and then the fastball had some life up in the zone at ninety-two to ninety-five. So, putting together a, a full season and a good one at that in Georgia Tech's rotation is going to be the key for Hill's draft stock. But other than that, pitchers come and go in this league so so often, whether it be innings limits, getting shut down kind of going home to, to work on stuff. Um, there is significant turnover on the pitching side. So I was more impressed with the bats than I was the arms. Um, I think that there are a lot of bats that have a chance to, to kind of hit themselves into the first round um, or at least into the, into the top two round discussion. So it, it's going to be fun to see how it all pans out. Yeah, that's interesting to think about how it's a, a pretty hitter dominant league. I think it makes sense from just a practical standpoint of like how pitchers are able to get in their offseason work and how that differs from hitters, just given the workload constraints you can have. Uh, but it's nice to hear that there's some college players that are exciting you because I think it was probably one of the most down high school summer circuits I've ever experienced. And I think throughout 2024, this cycle, we're probably going to have to balance how much of this is 2023 hangover versus actually having a down 2024 class. I do think this is maybe the least exciting class uh, I've experienced in my time at BA since I've, since I've been following the draft at this period um, in the cycle. So there's a chance that certainly some guys will pop up, but Really, at this stage, it seems like there's not a clear guy who's kind of running away with I'm the top player in the class on either the high school or the college side. Um, some of our top high school players in the class, Connor Griffin, um, who's now outfielder shortstop and right-hander out of Mississippi, and then Derek Curiel, um, high school outfielder out of California. They didn't have the greatest summers. Other guys who are ranked highly, like Owen Pino, he was kind of just fine. Um, I think the most impressive player that I saw personally, there are a few guys who, who stood out, but Kater Mbide, uh, a catcher out of Texas, coming into this summer, I was really excited to, to see him catch, just given the defensive reputation he's developed, what Ben has talked about with how good of a thrower he is, and he showed off an absolute cannon behind the plate um, 
at times in the summer, he showed some good actions and receiving ability behind the plate as well. But I was really impressed with his ability to drive the ball for power to the opposite field, um, specifically at the area code games. I think that's an environment where the ball travels a little bit more than it did when the event was at Blair Field. Um, but even with that, he was one of the one of the only players to show over the fence opposite opposite field power, uh, both in batting practice and in game. He hit a pair of home runs at that event, consistently was hitting the ball hard. He's a big physical catcher. Um, I'm curious to see how people will compare and contrast him with Blake Mitchell, who was just a top 10 pick out of Texas as a catcher in the 2023 class. Aaron Bide is a right-handed hitter, which changes the uh, the conversation a little bit. But in terms of, of tool set power, physicality, I think Aaron Bide is probably a better defensive catcher than Blake Mitchell was at the time. Um, so it's basically like, do you like the left-handed bat or do you like the more advanced defensive catcher? Um, and then another player who really impressed me was Caleb Bonimer. He is a shortstop out of Michigan, or excuse me, he goes to, um, yeah, he's out of Michigan. He's committed to Virginia. Uh, big physical third baseman shortstop. He's, he's worked out at shortstop. I saw him play a lot of games at third base. Looked good at the position, moved around well, but he's got a really intriguing power-speed combination. Um, everything he hit was hard. Coming into the year, I don't know that he had a great reputation as a pure hitter. It sounds like there was a little bit of swing and miss in the past, a little bit of stiffness to the operation. It is kind of an unusual setup. He has his front shoulder tucked in. There's a little bit of stiffness, but again, in games at PG National, he hit the ball hard. Throughout the week at Erica Games, he hit the ball hard. At Baseball Factory's All-American game, he hit the ball hard for me. So I just really have had a lot of positive looks at Bonhammer specifically. Uh, I think he's moving up boards. Um, another player I really liked was Charlie Bates, who's a shortstop out of California. Really good actions defensively. I think he has a pretty polished and advanced approach. He is a Stanford commit. So uh, whether or not he's actually in play for teams next year at the draft is going to be a, a pretty big question given the tendency for Stanford commits to just get to campus in general. But those are some of the guys who impressed for me. But I think coming away from these events, uh, I'm really hoping that over the next year, we'll, we'll get some sort of consensus on who the top players are, because I've been asking as many scouts as I can really like, who do you have at the top? Who do you have at the top? And I feel like it's a different name every time. It's a big cluster of the sim of the names that we have at the top of our board, but I don't think there's any confidence in like the specific order or if, if there's even a clear-cut one at this point. Um, and based on how you're talking about the Cape, uh, based on how I saw the high school class, maybe it's going to be another year where it's just very college-heavy up top. Yeah, and I, I think that while there might not be a consensus uh, guy at the top yet or or even at the in the top three to, to five, um, what this class might lack in, in terms of high-end and – and deep talent like 2023 had, it might make up for an excitement in following it. Cause it seems like it's an open race um, for guys to really play themselves into that top 10, even yeah. top five discussion, which I, I think that as the cycle progresses, we'll make, we'll make it really fun to follow. I think exactly that is going to be, like you said, last year we had Dylan Cruz at one at this, this point in time. We didn't really have to think too much about it. And really throughout the entire process, he kind of was at the top of our list. I mean, Paul Skeen's ascending was a, a fun little wrinkle, but we could have a lot of Paul Skeen's-ish situations where players just really change the way they're viewed, entering the spring, take a step forward, 
every year players are going to get hurt, take a step backward, but it's wide open. There's, there's no, there's no talent that's kind of preventing you from claiming your spot as the top player in the class. If you're in this range uh, and you take that next step and show the performance, I think there are a number of different players that, uh, that could eventually be one, one. I mean, even two years ago, we saw it with Jackson holiday. He was not seen as a consensus first round talent after the summer um, had a pretty big, off season tools jumped and all of a sudden he's the one one at the end of the day. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun covering this class, seeing who's moving up and down, who's kind of going from reliever to starter, uh, giving some more confidence in that profile, uh, who's shoring up some of their offensive question marks. So yeah, it should be a lot of fun to cover and follow just from our perspective. Selfishly. I'm not sure if the teams will like it as much as 2023, uh, just given some of the confidence you can have in the players, but for Marcy, it'll certainly be a blast. Um, but let's get into our 2023 draft reviews, Peter. So I, I basically just have never really, especially on a podcast, been able to talk through the draft in any thorough or detailed way. And the fact that you're here now gives me a great excuse to do that with someone who knows the class at a really deep level. Um, I wasn't sure what the best way to move through this was, but I think we're just going to go division by division. Um, five teams across six different episodes, give our thoughts on on the draft uh on each draft class who we like who we don't like um but we're going to start with the al east today let's start with the baltimore orioles um i'm just going to go down from you know who's at the top of the division right now i think that's the most fun way to do it because again we got the orioles first and the yankees last uh pretty weird that that is happening i don't i don't know the last time that the yankees have been last in the division and the orioles have been first but Let's dig into Baltimore's class. They picked 17th overall. They took a player we've already mentioned on this podcast, Enrique Bradfield, first overall. I'll just kind of scan down. Um, maybe I'll go through the top five rounds for each team just to kind of give you an overview as you're listening, and then we can kind of pick through players um, based on who we like, who we don't like, uh, et cetera. But they took Enrique Bradfield in the first. They took Matt Corvath out of North Carolina. In the second round, they took Jackson Baumeister, right-handed pitcher out of Florida State, in the second supplemental round. They took right-handed pitcher Kiefer Lord in the third round. With their second, third-round pick, they took Tavian Josenberg, an outfitter out of Arkansas. Uh, with their fourth-round pick, they took Levi Wells, right-handed pitcher out of Texas State. And then in the fifth round, they took UNC Charlotte outfitter Jake Cunningham. Um, so that's kind of laying the, the scene for this draft class. What are your overall thoughts on Baltimore? Uh, Peter, just what they did, players they took, or or overall strategy for you? So I'm a sucker, and it might be my bias coming through. I love the college-heavy draft that Baltimore had. There was a deep sleeper in the 15th round at a high school who, if they if they could have signed him, I, I, I would have been really, really excited about it. Cray Lott out of Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, he's going to Northwest Florida State. But I really like the Orioles draft at the top with – with Bradfield and Horvath, we mentioned Bradfield at the start of the show as a guy mm -hmm. who could already probably have an impact at the big league level with his speed and glove. Um, and he's, he's performed well so far in the minor leagues. Again, it's, it's, it's kind of what he did at Vanderbilt. Um, it's, it's obviously the clear hit over power, really good swing decisions at the plate. It's a, it's a good approach. He sees the ball really well. Um, and he's 13 for 13 um, in stolen base attempts at, at Delmarva. And um, I think that's a guy that you can move relatively quickly through your system. Um, in my mm -hmm. opinion, I think that it, in, in knowing in, in having the privilege of knowing Enrique a little bit on a personal level, the makeup is off the charts. There are serious leadership qualities that both come from 
just who he is. And then also his time at Vanderbilt, um, those, those Vanderbilt kids are our next level. And I think that he has a lot of traits, obviously on the field that are going to bode well as he progresses through the minor leagues, but also off the field, they're going to carry him really well. And I, Matt Horvath has long been a personal cheese ball of mine. I've been, I've been at the, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been the conductor of the Mac Horvath hype train, I think since like (laughs) since like last February, but um, I was happy he went in the, in the second round. I think that's a really good pick. We mentioned the, the athleticism with him, how, how versatile he is. You can play him at third base. You can play him in a corner outfield. He's got a plus arm um, that would play in either position. And uh, the swing decisions and approach are, are ever improving. It's, it's an exciting blend of hit and power. So I think that's mm-hmm. another guy that projects to be an impact player um, potentially at the next level. And then the pair of college arms and Baumeister and Lord Lord might be the more exciting. I'd say of the two, just given the pure stuff that he has um, and the fact that he's got an interesting story where he, he started at a division three school and then he transferred to Washington um, fastball up to 98, 99 um, budding slider. The key for him is going to be to, to kind of continue to develop um, his polish and, and refine his delivery a little bit. Um, and I think getting in uh, a professional system, especially one like the Orioles is going to really, really benefit him long-term. And then mm-hmm. scrolling down here in, in searching for other picks that I, that I kind of liked. And I'm curious to see um, who you have too. I like Braxton Bragg in the eighth at a Dallas Baptist. Um, low three quarter slot guy started 16 games at Dallas Baptist basketball up to 96 sits in the 91 and 94 range, um, can really spin his slider and turn over a change up. It's a, it's a chance for two true plus pitches. Um, and then I also really like going deeper. Um, I like Cole Ehrman out of Cal state Fullerton in the 16th round a lot. I know that college catching is so coveted and, and Connor Burns from Long Beach State, I think, was the top defensive catcher um, in this year's class. But I think Ehrman brings a similar defensive prowess um, that Burns does. It's a plus arm, handles balls in the dirt really well, calls a good game. Um, I think that, and this is no disrespect to Cole Ehrman, I think that it's almost like you get a, a, a bargain Connor Burns, so to speak, really late. Um, and I think that's, um, that's a really, really, uh, that was a good pick. I liked it a lot from Baltimore. So that was kind of, that was my two cents on their draft. Yeah, no, no, good, good thoughts, uh, down the board. I, I think Baltimore is always a fun draft class to look at because they've just done such a good job scouting and developing players over the last five or so years. Um, I really don't like the Enrique Bradfield pick at 17 in terms of just, overall rank but i really like this player team fit if that makes sense i think this is a perfect organization for a player like bradfield to go to given the offensive questions that you have with him they're a team that has just done a phenomenal job developing hitters i don't really think you need to do much of anything with his supplemental tools or skills just go let him do his thing um but given how they've taken some hitters in the past and proved them i'm really curious to see what they do with enrique bradfield he's gotten off to a solid start in pro ball as has Matt Corvath, um, a player that I like kind of along the same lines later in the draft is Matthew Etzel, their 10th rounder. Um, he's an outfitter of Southern Mississippi. He's got a really exciting tool set, uh, power, speed, physicality. 
there's always been some questions about his approach. He expands the zone a little bit, the strikeout rate, the contact rate overall can be a little bit questionable. I think fringy hitter at times, but he has raw power. He has speed. Um, he went 23 for 28 stolen base attempts this spring. Um, so that sort of tool set with a player development system like the Orioles, I really like. I also thought it was interesting with how many pitchers uh, they took with really impressive IVB metrics on their fastball. I think six of the team's seven pitchers in the top 10 rounds had at least 17.5 inches of IVB this spring. Um, Bragg was the only pitcher who didn't, and you already mentioned the fact that he's kind of this low slot side army type that also creates his own unique look. One of the pitchers that I like in this class a little bit, I'm really intrigued by his stuff is Teddy Sharkey, right-hander out of coastal Carolina in the seventh round. Um, he has a really high carry fastball was in the 94, 95 mile per hour range up to 98. Uh, I heard from some scouts who thought that maybe you give this guy a chance to start in pro ball, even though he started, I think maybe just one game in college, just given the control improvements He's probably a reliever in the long run, just given the usage he's had um, throughout his college career. But the fact that he does have a real three-pitch mix, the control took a step forward, I would at least be curious to see if they even try it. But beyond that, I think he's got the stuff to to handle a bullpen role pretty well. Um, yeah, I think it's a pretty solid overall collection of of talent in this class. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and Sharky's a great call. I think that um... – there's a, a chance when all is said and done that he might end up being the best reliever um, in this draft class. It's it's two borderline double plus breaking balls with that fastball in the in the mid to upper nineties. So mm-hmm. um, I the that's interesting that that someone suggested starting him for a game. Um, yeah, I personally would not do, but. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even as I'm scanning over this list again, like Jake Cunningham is not, it seems like the Orioles really take these toolsy hitters that have hit question marks, at least the last few years they've done that. Um, and if they can figure out the hit tool, which they've seemed to do a good job, at least as good a job as any other team in, in developing hitters, you could have really good value. If, if there are some teams that are maybe scared of a hit tool, um, but you have like toolsy players like Judd Fabian from a year ago, um, you could get some real value with that. If you think you can, you can help figure out the, just the pure hitting ability with these players because I mean, Cunningham is a good runner. He's a good defender. He's got power. Like he's an exciting package of tools with the 154th pick of the draft. So um, those are kind of thoughts on the Orioles. Let's move on to the Rays. Uh, the Rays, obviously just given the player they took first overall, I'm going to like their draft class. They took Braden Taylor first overall um, pulling up their board here. We've got Braden Taylor. Uh, they drafted him as a shortstop out of Texas Christian, which is maybe interesting we get out of that. That's their first-round pick. Adrian Santana in the supplemental first round, a shortstop out of Doral Academy High School in Florida. Uh, in the second round, they took Colton Ledbetter, an outfielder out of Mississippi State. In the third round, they took Trey Morgan, LSU's first baseman and outfielder, although he was drafted as a first baseman. Uh, in the fourth round, Hunter Hawes, shortstop out of Texas A&M. And in the fifth round, Trevor Harrison, a right-handed pitcher out of J.W. Mitchell High School in florida um i would just say the rays in any given draft year are always tough for me to dial in on in our mock drafts i don't know if it's because of where they're picking or just their tendency to take any given demographic that makes it tricky to pin down um but i was thrilled when they got Braden taylor at 19 i think that's elite value uh, and I also was intrigued by just they have a lot of hitters this year that are very much contact oriented with 
power question marks, and it's almost the opposite of the players they took in 2022. Uh, I remember last year, I mean, they took – sorry, I'm just trying to get the hang of navigating our, our draft database. It's a little bit different on the new website. But last year they took Xavier Isaac in the first round. They took Brock Jones. They took Ryan Cermak. They did take Chandler Simpson, who is more of a contact hitter. But three of the first four of those players I think are like really – interesting power guys with real hit questions, especially Xavier Isaac and Brock Jones. And their 2023 class is basically the inverse of that. Uh, it is fairly college heavy too. So Peter, what are your overall thoughts on, on the Rays draft class? Uh, every Rays pick, especially after you get, I'd say into, into the day two range, I really like to look at because they're an organization that develops talent really well. Um, they know what they're doing developmentally. Um, and so again, I really like, especially their first five selections. I, again, I'm a, I'm a huge college guy. I like how they went five college guys in their first six picks or four college guys in their first five picks. Um, mm-hmm. Again, we talked about Taylor at the start of the show in terms of polish. And I don't want to say big league readiness because that's not necessarily what you look at when you're drafting a guy, but um, he's one of the more mature bats I'd say in this class. Um, there's really no, tool with Taylor kind of like you said that that is his carrying tool so to speak he's just a really good baseball player that does a lot of things well um it's yeah. a really pretty swing from the left side above average power all fields type of approach um good pitch recognition skills maybe a tick above average runner um and the defense this year at least when I saw him especially in Omaha um I he kind of showed to me that he could probably stick at third base um he moved well mm-hmm. to either side um, the throwing arm was was at least average, and um, I think that again, that's a that's a pick you can feel really excited about. Colton Ledbetter is another one that that I he had first round buzz all through this year, um, especially top two round buzz, and I think getting him at fifty five where they did is a is a, mm-hmm. a borderline steal. Um, he had three twenty at Mississippi State this year with. 17 bags, 12 doubles, 12 home runs, hammered the baseball, multiple exit velocities over 110, um, kind of a data darling, super athletic, um, held down center field even um, for Mississippi State and has played at some professionally in, in Charleston and low A. So uh, he's performing already at the minor league level, and so is Trey Morgan, perhaps the best defensive third baseman in all of college baseball. Or first um, base. <laughs> yeah, best defensive first baseman in, in all college baseball. They've split time within between left field and, and first, which I think they're handling that well because he is athletic enough to handle an outfield position. And um, at the plate, he's he's still doing what he did at, at LSU and producing, um, producing at a high level to this point. He's hitting close to 300, um, only a minuscule sample size, but um, he's been hitting mm. the ball well and he's only struck out once um, in a professional game. So um, really like it at the top. And then kind of going a little bit deeper into it, um, Hunter Haas is a bat-to-ball specialist, um, 86% contact rate, 94% end-zone contact rate. Um, and isolating against fastballs, it's a 96% um, end-zone contact rate. So um, just – Again, another guy that's going to consistently move the baseball, average defender. I'd say it's a pretty high floor type of pick. I don't think that the impact mm-hmm. is going to be um, super, super high with him, but 
it's a safe pick. And then going to the 11th round when kind of looking at the Rays and who they are developmentally, uh, Garrett yeah, Edwards is a guy that a good really, one. really excites me, especially in that range. Um, reliever-ish, probably definitely a reliever, I'd say, but 6'5". I think, I think he would be quite a bit more famous if he didn't get injured and was pitching with this LSU team in the College World Series because he was absolutely dominating. Oh, it, it, without a doubt. And it, and to your point, before he got hurt, one nine ERA, 27 Ks to five walks and 23 innings, fastballs, 93 to 97, and then the slider is also plus. And so I, he's a two-pitch guy, but with the Rays and also with the present stuff that he has, I think he's got a chance to be to be legit um, at the professional level. So um, those are it's kind of my thoughts on the Rays class. Yeah, I am intrigued uh, with a few of the positional things that you mentioned. We have Braden Taylor selected as a shortstop. I think that's what he was announced as on draft day. I'll have to check to make sure that's not an error because as of this point, Braden Taylor has only played third base in pro ball, which makes sense to me. Like I thought for him specifically, it was like, is he going to stick at third base or is he going to move to second? Not he's a shortstop playing out of position for some reason with, with TCU, although they have a good, a good defensive shortstop there. So that theoretically could have been the case. Um, I'm with you. I think he's got a chance to stick at the position. Love the hit tool. I mean, I've talked ad nauseum about how much I love Braden Taylor. Uh, so I don't need to go too crazy over him here. Adrian Santana, maybe the best defensive shortstop in the 2023 class overall. There are a couple candidates for it. I think Santana would be one of the first guys I mentioned. He might be the toolsiest player in this class, just given the speed and the defensive ability. It's a double plus runner. He is smaller. Um, the race have, taken a number of smaller hitters in the past that just have kind of good contact ability, short levers. Um, I'll be curious to see what kind of power hitter he turns into and, and just what hitter overall in pro ball, the jump from, from high school to professional ranks is obviously pretty significant, but he performed well this spring. And I think there was a little bit more conviction in his offensive chops this spring compared to last summer. Um, and they play pretty good competition down there in South Florida. So that was nice. Trey Morgan, too, the fact that they're playing him both at first base and left field, I think is interesting. He's always going to be a fascinating player because in an ideal world, you play him at first base and just reap the rewards of how good he is at the position. But they're really just like he doesn't have the power to profile at first base. And I'm curious if there's a scenario, especially for the Rays, if he makes the big leagues, if there's any scenario where he's like this late inning first base swap player kind of how they used him at LSU. I'm not sure entirely if they – there were definitely a few games they used him like this where later in the game they kind of moved him to first, I think, to improve the defense, and they put another good defender in the outfield because trade was fairly raw in left field despite his athleticism. I think that's maybe a trickier, trickier position than people might give it credit for just because of the angles off the bat. Like I, I think his, his route running and his just reads off the barrel in the outfield have a, a ways to go. But in terms of him profiling as a hitter, I think the outfield makes sense. But I would love for there to be a world where he could be sort of this late-inning first-base defensive savant because you just don't think of that position like that. But he's so good. I mean, even in the College World Series, he made an impactful defensive play that saved a run. So I'm really fascinated with how he's used. I mean, ideally, he just develops power and he can play first base, but I, I don't really see that happening. I think he's more of a contact bat who will have a good professional approach, take his walks. What do you think about that sort of like defensive versatility at a position you normally don't associate with defensive value. 
I think it's a really interesting point you bring up. And I think that the value that he does bring um, is, is, is really, really good. And, and like you mentioned at first base, um, probably the best defender in the draft class. And then in left field, as you mentioned, kind of watching him out there for the first few times that LSU used him there. Um, the route running was a little crude. The angles were kind of tough, but um, as he's out there more and more and takes more reps, um, it's it's going to improve and, and work itself out. So where he can be kind of an average defender in left field and then a double plus defender over at first where you can bring where you can slide him over to first, maybe in the later innings, as you said, from the seventh inning on in a close game. Um, I think that's that's going to be really valuable, and he's got a chance to to win his club some games just on his defense alone. And like you mentioned, mm-hmm. I I don't know how much power he's going to hit for in his career. Um, I just don't think that's the that's the type of player that he is. And I know that's a really simple and borderline unintelligent phrase, but I like you just kind of look at some guys frames um, in, in what weight they can put on and if they should put on weight. And I don't think that's a guy that you want to touch necessarily, because if you, mm-hmm. you know, add, so depending on how much you go, if you had 15 to 20 pounds, it might take away from some of the mobility over at first and it's a whole domino effect. And mm-hmm. if you try to get him to hit for more power, it might take away from his approach. I think that, the Rays are pretty comfortable with the player that he is right now. And they knew what they were getting into when they drafted him. And I think on, in just his profile alone right now with the advanced hit tool, the, the pro approach, the, the plus plus defense, I think that's enough to have, to have a pretty Mm -hmm. big impact. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think if, if there was more conviction is power, we're probably talking about a guy that, that goes inside the top 50 picks. That's really the one big question we all had for him uh, two other players. I wanted to mention here for the done the board that I think is, are fascinating uh, TJ Nichols, the sixth rounder right-handed pitcher out of Arizona. I'm just going to read the last line of our scouting report here. We wrote, he's the likely reliever given his two pitch mix and control, but there's a chance he can find more success with a pro team that can get a bit more wiggle on his fastball or help him throw strikes more consistently. I mean, if you read that line and you were trying to pick the perfect team to pair him with, it would probably be the Rays, given what they've done with some other iffy strike-throwing pitchers in the past. I mean, Shane McClanahan, who just went down, is maybe the best example you could find of this, uh, just given his strikes concerns in college and what they turned him into, one of the best pitchers in baseball. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see what they can do with him because Nichols does have pretty phenomenal pure stuff. He's got a great frame, 6'5", 189 pounds. The arm talent has always been better than the results. It was an 18.7% strikeout rate, 10.4% walk rate this spring. He split time as a starter and a reliever. The ERA was also quite a bit worse than the peripherals um, might indicate. But it's mid-90s heat, been up to 99. Uh, again, I think that the pitch poly plays down, given life, given command that he has. Um, and hitters had pretty good success against that pitch. But in terms of overall arm talent, there's a lot to work with here for an organization that has gotten quite a bit out of their arms. Another name who's interesting because he did sign is 18th rounder Jeremy Pallone. He's a left-handed pitcher out of Canada. He was actually drafted in 2022 as a 16-year-old in the 18th round. Um, Please don't ask me how to explain how Canadians get their eligibility because I don't know if I fully understand it even today. But he was once again draft eligible this year and was still one of the youngest players in the draft after being drafted a year prior. He's a small kind of undersized lefty. 
Um, with good field, it's been a breaking ball. I think I'm more interested in the fact that he was just drafted twice before he turned 18, which I'm, I'm curious now, like how many players can claim that ever. And, and now I'm going to have to ask JJ after this podcast, because that's something you probably look up for me in like two seconds, but he's fascinating <laughs> just from like a bio standpoint. Yeah. And uh, that's I, all I, I have on the race. Yeah. No, I was going to say to the TJ Nichols point, um, if there's any team that can quote unquote, maybe save him, um, it is a team like Tampa. So it's exciting stuff with Nichols. It's just in college. Um, he, he was never really able to, um, to kind of have that, that loud season. Everyone thought he would the fre- the true freshman year showed, um, big time flashes. And then it kind of backed up from there. So if they can work on that fastball shape, especially, I think that he's got a chance to, to be really good. Yeah. All right, so moving on to our next team in the division, we've got the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, I'm curious if you if you have a theme picked out for this draft class, Peter, because when I was doing our, our really brief draft reviews of each team, we kind of tried to throw a theme on each of them. Toronto is one of the toughest for me to discern any overriding theme. Um, I think maybe that's a, a good example of why like, you don't always have one. Maybe you just take the best player on your board, and it's as simple as that. But running through their first uh, top five-round picks, we've got Arjun Namala. Uh, shortstop out of Florida, our top-ranked high school shortstop in the class at number 20 overall. They did not have a second-round pick. They took John Watts-Brown, right-handed pitcher out of Oklahoma State, in the third round. Uh, they took Landon Marutis, another high school Florida player, this this time a right-handed pitcher in the fourth round. And then in the fifth round, they took a left-handed pitcher out of Michigan, Connor O'Halloran. Uh, so that is the Blue Jays. I think I really like the Jerron Watts-Brown pick in terms of value. I thought he should have gone in the second round, especially considering the drop-off of college pitchers in the class that we talked about a few times on this podcast prior to the draft, Peter. And I think he was – I always probably liked him more than the industry just because I like the athlete. I like the slider, although I acknowledge there are some questions with just fastball command and maybe fastball shape with him. Um and maybe I'm a little less excited about the highest end guys on Arjun Namala. I always liked a few shortstops behind him a little bit better, but there's no doubting the youth, the bat speed, the raw power, the power potential still to come with him. And they did get him for, I think it was $700,000 under slot with that pick. So I think in terms of talent for the value, pretty solid, even if he's not my like favorite player profile. Uh, but what are your thoughts on Toronto here, Peter? An interesting blend at the top and really throughout the draft of, of high school and college um, with Namala, I'm, I'm with you on that. He may have not been my, my personal favorite shortstop or even guy available there, but it's a high upside type of pick. He's only 17. Um, there's a lot of physical projection left and just as he matures naturally, he's going to add strength with and he's already got some present power. It's an above average arm at shortstop. Um, the one sort of knock on him I heard. So in the, at least leading up to the draft was um, there was some swing and miss issue, some swing and miss issues, mm-hmm. um, struggled with spin. Um, and so yeah. far in the complex um, he's, he's held his own. He's walking more than he's striking out. Um, he's hit the ball. Well, I know Jeff got a good look at him. Um, a couple yeah, of I was reading just chat after going to the FCL, and, and one of the questions was which of the 2023 players stood out to you the most. And I think Namala was one. It's only five games, but he's hitting 308, 571, 539. 
I think you're smart to point out that walk to strikeout ratio because that is one of the reasons that I was a little bit more skeptical. I always thought just the chase rate, the the pitch recognition, the swing decisions were a bit too crude. And that, that kind of scared me off the profile a little bit. I wondered if it would always be kind of this power over hit profile at the next level. Um, but I think it's worth reinforcing that he is super young for the class. He's got a lot of time to kind of adjust, improve his approach, refine his approach. And again, very small sample, but he's looked good in pro ball so far. Yeah, and, and the upside is certainly there. And so, I mean, if he pans out, he might end up being – he, I mean, he's got one of the more higher ceilings, I think, of of anyone in the draft. Um, just given the age, what he's what he brings to the table now, and then um, projecting on him a bit with Watts Brown, it's two plus breaking balls, it's similar to at least in terms of fastball issue with TJ Nichols. Um, his fastball got hit um, a lot at Oklahoma State. The shape wasn't great. Hitters, I think, hit close to 300 off it. I think it was 296 with 11 doubles and five home runs. Um, but the breaking balls are really good. So again, if they can refine his fastball shape um, again, get it kind of like the report said on Nichols, get a little bit more life, a little bit more wiggle to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a chance to be really good because prior to this year at Oklahoma state, um, he was excellent both against wood, especially against wood on the Cape. Um, mm-hmm. and then also, um, as a sophomore at Long Beach and took a little bit of a step back, um, at, at Oklahoma state. But I, I think that, um, it's middle of the rotation upside, um, with Watts Brown. And then again, the key is just going to be figuring out the fastball O'Halloran in the fifth from Michigan. Again, one of the themes of this year's draft was, was the lack of college lefties and O'Halloran, I think is a great option. Um, in the fifth to go and get a polished lefty plus slider whiff rate at school um, was, I think 42% tides it really well. Um, it's an uncomfortable angle. Uh, I, I think that he's again, got a chance to be a, a, a nice four starter or so. And, and going further down Grant Rogers in the 11th, super polished college arm. It's, it's a guy that really knows how to pitch. It's a command over stuff type of guy. Um, mm-hmm. And then Kellen Sauer in the 15th is interesting. He's got a big time arm um, reliever ish, but uh, getting him in the 15th for 150 K that's a guy that um, in that range and for that amount of money, I think is worth um, is worth taking. And then circling back a little bit to the fourth Landon Marutis really athletic right-hander at a cavalry Christian in Florida. Um, I, I think that he's, he's got a chance to be a really, really exciting arm. Um, Mm -hmm. In my opinion, already up to 94 shows flashes of a plus slider. It's only going to, I think there's a lot of velo left to add um, with looking at his frame and and how he moves. So um, I, it was a trying to figure out the, the best way to describe this draft for Baltimore, a lot of upside plays I'd say. For Toronto. Um, yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yes. For Toronto, um, the blue Jays. Yeah. A lot of upside play. Um, but I, I think it's a, it was a good class. Yeah. They were one of, we haven't talked about financials with any of these draft classes too much, but they were one of seven teams that went fully up to the 5% overage, which I always like to see just maximizing the dollars you can spend on a draft class. I feel like if I was running a department or in charge of, in charge of the money, like that would be a no brainer for me. I'm surprised we didn't have more than seven teams do that. And obviously 
it's easier to say this in hindsight. Sometimes it's just trickier. Maybe you're planning on it, but you got signed, guys signed cheaper than you expected. So if that's the case, um, understandable. Just going over the over 100% of your bonus pool is always good. It's fairly balanced up top. I think Namala was one of the bigger underslot deals in the first round. They put that savings towards overslot deals for Watts Brown and Landon Emeritus, who you're just talking about, who I also really like. I think it's a pretty well-rounded profile for him. Uh, he was a big riser this spring, just came out throwing a little bit harder, and that velocity uptick stacked onto already strong athleticism and track record of strike throwing is pretty good. I'm curious about the spin, um, like how that develops in the future. I think as a high schooler, he was more of like a changeup over breaking ball pitcher. And so I'm curious, like what sort of shape they they work in with the breaking ball. He's shown a curveball and a slider in the past. Um, seems like most teams prefer the slider. Uh, and just seeing last few years, I'll think some pitcher has a good curveball and like a fringy slider and a year later that flips. Just seeing what they do with his breaking ball, I'm curious about. Um, and then one other name I wanted to mention, it didn't actually sign this player, but their 17th round pick out of Air Force Academy, and I'm probably going to butcher this name. So if you know how to pronounce it correctly, Peter, please jump in here. But Sam Kulasingham, I wish I they could have got him. I was going to say, right? he got the name, yeah. Okay, sweet. So they didn't actually sign him, and the military commitment could have made things tricky, similar to like Noah Song's commitment a few years ago. But his end zone contact rate was pretty outstanding. It was 93% this past spring, a really good walk-to-strikeout ratio. That would have been a really awesome pick, I feel like, on day three to see how that player panned out in pro ball. But he was not signed, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of belaboring the point here. But that, that would have been a fun one for me. Aaron Munson, just actually seeing that just now at Angelo State, he was kind of an interesting name for me. I remember watching a little bit of Synergy video. I feel like he is like a smaller right-handed pitcher with some life to the fastball. So in the 19th round, maybe look out for Munson. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty fun draft class for Toronto as well. I Do you like have any fun remarks on – yeah. I was going to say another player I like in, in the middle day two range is Jace Borfin out of Arkansas. Um mm. Struggled in his true sophomore year, hit just 228, but had a really nice summer on the Cape that carried over into this spring. He hit 318 with 15 doubles, 16 home runs, um, electric bat speed. It's a really pretty operation at the plate. Um, and so far in Dunedin, in five games, he's, he's he's seven for 19, and he's got a double and five home runs, and he's walking mm -hmm. more than he's striking out. So. Uh, a pretty big time, small sample at a Borfin. I think that again, he's a, he's an advanced college bat, um, relatively high floor. Um, and he's already, um, he's, he's showing some prowess already. Um, especially, um, on the, on the power side of things. Yeah. I always thought of him as more of a power over hit guy. So to see the, the walks and strikeouts being solid to start is, is pretty good for them, but let's move on to. The Red Sox. Uh, the Red Sox had a fun draft. They took Kyle Teal with their first overall pick. Let me pull up their full draft board here so we can work through it. Um, so we've got Kyle Teal in the first round as their 14th overall selection. In the second round, they took Mazan Zanatello, a shortstop out of Missouri, a high school player. In the third round, they stuck to the high school ranks, and they took shortstop Antonio Anderson out of Georgia. In the fourth round, they took 
Matthew Duffy, a right-handed pitcher out of Canisius College. And then they had two uh, compensation picks right after the fourth round, and they spent those picks on Christian Campbell, shortstop out of Georgia Tech, and Justin Reimer, a shortstop out of Wright State. Uh, then their fifth-round pick to round this out, I think this is probably going to be the most players we've talked about, or at least we've run through for the fifth round. Boston had a lot of picks this year was Connolly Early, a left-handed pitcher out of Virginia. So for all of you guys who who always wonder, oh, why did my team take a shortstop? We already have one. Uh, Boston is not your your draft class. A lot of shortstops. They always take high school shortstops. They took a few college guys as well. Um, but a ton of players to get through here. But I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Peter, since I started off with Toronto last time. What are your thoughts on Boston's class? Yeah, I, I really like Teal with their first overall pick. Um, I know that the... The catching was still a little bit of a work in progress at UVA, but super, super athletic back there. Um, an above average throwing arm hit 407 with 25 doubles and 13 home runs. Um, really, really explosive operation at the plate, and he's he's performed well so far um, in high A. It's just five games, but hitting 455 with a pair of doubles, walking almost as much as he's striking out. The approach with Teal is, has always been his calling card. Um, good swing decisions, um, limited wood bat track record, but um, performing well to this point. And then Nazan Zanatello, I mean, he's just simply put, I mean, he's an athletic freak. Um, plus mm-hmm. arm over at short, probably, I think he probably ends up, I'd say, in center field. I, I think I like him most out there in center where you can really let him run, show off the arm and the athleticism and the range into either gap. Um, I know he'll get his 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 fair share of games at short um, to start, but I think that long term, I like him probably best um, mm-hmm. in center, uh, just given who he is as a player. And then Christian Campbell in the in the fourth is a really really interesting pick, um, in my opinion. He's got a super super small and limited track record. Um, it's that one really good summer he had in the Northwoods League. Um, in 2022 in this excellent, I guess, redshirt freshman year, uh, you could call it at Georgia tech. He had 376, 16 doubles, four home runs, uh, four stolen bases compared to his 31 in the Northwoods. Um, I think that part of it's a, a byproduct of Georgia tech's not really a team that runs. Um, mm-hmm. but he's a super, super high contact guy. 90% overall contact rate with an end zone contact rate of 94% at school. And he's off to a good start in the complex league um, in Fort Myers. He's seven for 14, a couple of doubles and he's walking as much as he's striking out. And he's already swiped two bases. So that's another guy I like Conley early again, uh, a high floor, I'd say middle of the rotation upside guy from Virginia fastball he'll pitch with in the low 90s but he supplements it with a plus change up and an above average slider he's a strike thrower commands all of his offerings really well i think that's a safe pick um in the Mm. fifth round and then going a little bit deeper down the board isaac stevens out of oklahoma state in the 16th um that's a guy that i'm really really intrigued by um at that stage i think it's a he was one of the better sidewind submarine pitchers um, in the country this year. And it's a really oh, unique wow. profile nowadays because so few pitchers throw from that slot, but um, uniquely his fastballs up to 94 from down there. He pitches probably in the 91 and 93 range. Um, 
fastball slider combination. He threw 84% fastballs at school and had a 28% miss rate on it. Um, <laughs> was was a bright spot, I'd say, on an Oklahoma State team that lacked um, reliable arms. 2.2 ERA, 85 Ks in 64 innings. I mean, he can he can eat innings for you out of the bullpen. He threw upwards of, I think it was four to five innings on multiple occasions. He's mm-hmm. a really deep sleeper um, in the 16th, and I think that they could have found a really effective reliever in that range. Um, and then kind of looking elsewhere, uh, Caden Rose from Alabama I like in the 7th, um, and then they, they really went college arm heavy. So it, it was kind of a Red Sox class where it was high school shortstops, um, and then – you know, a bunch of college guys sandwiched in there. Yeah, very college-heavy class. I think they only signed to those first two high school players they selected. A few guys they had later on day three that they didn't get signed. Phoenix Cowell would have been really interesting on day three in the 15th round. Probably probably not too surprising they didn't get him signed there. But I, I think athletes and athleticism is kind of the standout trait for this Red Sox class. You mentioned Kyle Teal and Nizan Zanatello. I think those two are probably two of the better pure athletes overall in the class. And then you also have guys like Christian Campbell, guys like Caden Rose that you mentioned again, Cal was a really impressive athlete, even though he didn't sign. It's funny that you mentioned that Georgia tech is not much of a running program. Cause after producing Christian Campbell and then Chandler Simpson a year earlier, I mean, Chandler Simpson has stolen 81 bags this year with Charleston and low Like maybe we need to let the horses out and run a little bit more frequently over there in Atlanta. But I think Boston actually has a sneaky good track record of developing hitters. Um, JJ was mentioning some stuff in Slack the other day, just about their like metrics for some of their hitters over the last five years or so. It's obviously a pretty hitter heavy farm system right now. And they continue to invest a lot of draft capital and draft money in hitters at the top. I think Kyle Teal could have easily been a top 10 pick. So to get him at 14 on an underslot deal where they saved $660,000, I thought it's pretty phenomenal. They were also one of the more aggressive teams in going after college seniors or at least getting senior savings at at the back of day two. Um, So it's kind of interesting just to see that strategy, although they didn't have a ton of big bonus guys on day three. I think it was mostly just to get guys like Zanatello and Anderson signed to overslot deals. They also went straight up slot value for both Christian Campbell and Connolly early. Um, yeah. So there's interesting. I, I will say, I don't, I think I'm probably lower on Zanatello than it sounds like you. And I know Jeff is really high on Zanatello and obviously the Red Sox. I'm very curious what kind of hitter he turns into. I know he's like pretty phenomenal athlete. I always wondered a bit about his offensive ability. I think he's got a chance to hit for power. It's mostly for me just going to come down to like, what does the actual hit tool look like? Um, I'll be very interested to see what they do with him, where he plays defensively. I think he's maybe one of the most fascinating players in this class because I I probably would have taken him a full round or two later. Um, But the Red Sox are a team that's certainly not afraid to buck an industry consensus and take a player that they really like early on. I remember people just being really surprised about Nick York. Obviously the 2020 draft was a little bit different just with COVID and the amount of looks we did or didn't have on players, but um, it'll be a fun one to watch. And I do think 
like Cal Teal is one of the most fun players just overall, given how he swings, the athlete he is. I hope he sticks behind the plate, but I think he can play really almost any position on the field if he's not able to. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, and as you mentioned on Teal, one, they saved over $650,000 on him, but he was also a guy that had top some even top five buzz um, as we got closer to the draft as someone who could maybe break that break into the discussion and, and kind of break up that, that name of five guys with Jenkins and Clark and the three college players. Um, he was the name that at least I heard mentioned most as someone who could sneak his way in there. But with Zonatello, I'm with you. Um, there's certainly, um, I think, a lot of risk involved with it, just given the, the lack of present hit tool. Um, I, I, even for as athletic as he is, it's a really, really low floor, but his ceiling is also just as high. So slight risk there. I mean, they went all in with him. They gave him 3 million, um, in the second, almost double the slot value, um, to, to get him in there. So, um, it'll be, I mean, it, it it's going to be fun to watch him pan out. And then Matt Duffy in the fourth, I, I think that this is a pick that's going to go largely, undiscussed untalked about sign him for 230,000 or so under slot but interesting college right he had a canisius really good fastball shape um i like his arm action a lot um can spin a slider really well uh i think it's you know third three starter type upside but um getting him in the fourth round an, an advanced college arm who has a track record of throwing strikes and and performance um that's a good pick there in the fourth. I don't mean to cut you off, Los, but it is you were accidentally muted. I think. Oh yeah, sorry. I was I was just going <laughs> on and on over here, thinking I was doing a good job as a podcast host. But let's move on to uh, let's move on to the Yankees <laughs> final team of this division. It's odd to talk about them last, is what I was saying. Uh, I guess to myself in the universe over here in, in my my office. But it's weird them being at the bottom of the division. They're always picking at the very back of the first round because they finished so consistently high. Um, but the Yankees are also a little bit interesting because they didn't have that many picks. They didn't have a huge pool to deal with this year. They didn't have a second round pick and they didn't have a fifth round pick. So not a, not a ton of names to list off here at the very top, but we've got George Lombard high school shortstop in the first round in the third round, they took left-handed pitcher Kyle Carr and then in the fourth round, they took second baseman Rock Reggio out of Oklahoma State. And I should say Cal Carr, junior college arm out of Palomar, JC. Um, so we don't have as many names to talk about as the Red Sox, at least at the very top. But what are your thoughts on the Yankees here, Peter? I think to me what jumped out when just looking at some of the traits here is just unsurprisingly a lot of big exit velocity hitters. You got – guy like Jared Wegner further down the board um, as a college senior Arkansas outfitter. He had huge exit velocities. Uh, Kiko Romero in the seventh round had pretty good exit velocity data. And then even Rock Reggio, who's not the biggest guy in the world, but he's pretty put together and strong. His top end exit velocities were impressive as well. So that's maybe the one kind of trait that jumps out. Um, but thoughts on New York? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting draft class. One the pick at the top that I actually really like is Kyle Carr, um, the left-hander mm -hmm. out of uh, Palomar Junior College. It's a low mileage arm. He he actually started at, at University of San Diego, um, where he was a, a first baseman outfielder, 
um, has just recently converted to a full-time pitcher and he's been, he's been excellent. Uh, fastball up to 97, pretty clean, low effort delivery. Um, Changeup shows some pretty good tumble and fade uh, slider as well as flash plus. I think that's a really, um, he was the first junior college player off the board. That's the pick that, that honestly might excite me the most um, with yeah. the Yankees. I'm, I'm pretty high. on. I him. agree. And on, on car, like a few days before the draft, I remember hearing from a couple of people. They're like, are you hearing any buzz on car? I'm like, um, I haven't heard a ton. They're like, we're hearing that he's got a chance to go on day one. It sounds like he had a few really loud bullpen sessions prior to the draft. And I'm with you again, like hasn't thrown a ton, really athletic, easy deliveries, been up to 97 from the left side. Like, I think this is a really fascinating arm, just a lot of like pure stuff to work with. And the fact that he's a two way background who hasn't thrown a lot, like should be a lot more to come with him as he gets more reps, gets into a pro system. Um, yeah, I think that's a really fun one. Yeah, absolutely. And when all is said and done, I mean, he might be a three plus pitch type of guy with his fastball slider and change up. And I think it's front end of the rotation upside. I think he's the person in this draft class that, that I'm most excited to follow. Um, and, and another one that a little further down the board in the eighth round um, is six, eight right-hander Nick Judas from Louisiana Monroe. He was a, a player that as, at least as we went through the cycle, um, kind of had some buzz around him as a as a mid to to late day two arm, um, super super long levers, slingy loose arm slot, um, throws from a I'd, I'd say like mid to low three quarter slot um, slider. I think in my look at him on the Cape, um, he sprayed the ball a little bit, um, but fastball was up to ninety four. Um, through a couple of plus sliders. I think he's pretty relievery, um, I'd say, but mm-hmm. um, given the profile and present stuff, I think he's got a chance to be a, a pretty high leverage guy um, in the back end of a bullpen and then, and then circling a little bit back up to the top of the board. Rock Riggio has been um, a famous name for as long as I can remember. He's um, so fun to watch play, I think. He, he is he's really- the type of player, especially for the Yankees, He's almost got that Drew Gilbert kind of playing style where if he's on your team, you're going to absolutely love him. And if you don't like the team or you're playing against him, you're going to hate him because he just plays with a lot of energy, a lot of passion. I remember watching uh, very early in the season in Texas. I don't remember who Oklahoma State was playing. It might have been Arkansas. Like, I think the Arkansas fans hate Rizzo because he homered against them in the World Series or something. But, like, they really hated him. And he was he was the type of player that just kind of lived off that, like – like he he wasn't phased at all. I think he like had fun going back and forth with the fans while playing, and he's like this grinder type. So I love watching him play. He's yeah, he's really fun to watch. That's a good uh, energy comp there with Drew Gilbert um, in a swag comp because he does bring that. Um, he kind of embraces the I don't even know about villain role, but almost the anti hero role. Um, mm-hmm. I mean he he like he loves the booze and. Um, <laughs> The, oh, the booth. He loves the booze from the crowd. Uh, and I, I think that um, performance so far has been a little limited, but um, mm-hmm. again, he's, he's walking more than he struck out. Took him a little while to get his feet wet on the Cape too. Um, pro ball is always an adjustment for everybody. So uh, we're looking at a minuscule, minuscule sample size. So I think that mm-hmm. again, he's got a chance to, to, to pan out to be a really good player and, 
And the Yankees clearly believe it too. They almost gave him 200,000 over slot. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to go up to the top since we haven't really talked about their first rounder that much. The only player they signed for more than a million dollars. Again, the Yankees did not have a ton of money to spend this year. Their total signing bonus handed out was just 5.47 million, which I mean, Dylan Cruz, Paul Skeens, they're just laughing at that amount of money. Um, but they did go over their bonus pool a little bit uh, for, for what little they had to work with. They took George Lombard in the first round. Even though they did have Stan- Sammy Stafura on the board available, we heard they just love Sammy Stafura so much. So I was I was probably not going to put anyone but Sammy Stafura with the Yankees in the final mock. They took Lombard, who fits on talent. We had heard a lot of teams liked him in that kind of 20 to 30 range as the draft approach. It's big league bloodlines as the son of George Lombard, who was a second round pick in 94, currently a big league coach. Uh, I think it's just solid tools across the board for Lombard Jr. He's a very savvy player. Um, nothing really that you look at on his on his card and say, oh, that's a that's below average. That needs to improve. I think the power and speed specifically ticked up in the last year or so of his amateur career. He was running better. He was hitting for power. It's a good frame, six foot three, hundred ninety pounds. I think there's a chance he moves to third base and is a good defender there. Um, I wouldn't want to push him off the position until he shows he can't handle it. But I think just would, given the the kind of size he has, the the foot speed, the actions, decent chance to move from shortstop to third base. But just really well well rounded profile. Excuse me. Um, yeah, nothing to nothing to really critique too much. I don't know if he's got like this obvious carrying tool. He just does a lot of things really well, and maybe he's going to be one of those players with. With that kind of baseball IQ, the way of going about the game, the instincts in the game, like probably going to get the most out of his tools. Um, and the Yankees seem to like players like that. I mean, Anthony Volpe fits a lot of those traits, even though I think physically they're very different players. Um, so that's a fun one. I think i got a couple guys on day three who are interesting. Josh Tiedemann in the 13th round. He was probably not the most famous player out of Hamilton High School in this past draft class. The most famous would be Rock Chalowski, who's going to UCLA apparently turned down pretty significant money to go to UCLA, but Tiedemann um, impressed for some scouts this spring. I think he is maybe more of a quiet player. They drafted him as a two-way player. He's only hit so far in pro ball. I'm curious to see whether he winds up being a hitter or a pitcher, but I heard some really good things about him from some scouts post-draft, so I'm kind of fascinated about Tiedemann in general. And then Bryce Warrecker, the 20th rounder out of Cal Poly. Oh, that was just a massive. You stole my deep sleeper. Yeah, yeah, well – I'm curious about what you think about him, but just honestly, the size, six foot eight, 240 pounds, the fact that he's been a good strike thrower, despite that size, I don't know at what point we're going to have to like put away the, the link between tall pitchers and erratic control or poor body control. Because I feel like over the last few years, we've talked about so many big and tall pitchers who have really impressive strike throwing ability and, and touch and feel and body control. Like Noah Schultz is the one I'm thinking of that jumps out immediately, but uh, Warrecker had like a 7% walk rate in 2023, which is a very good rate. That was the highest of his career. Um, he doesn't throw the biggest fastball. It's mostly like upper 80s, gets into the low 90s. If he can add a little bit more velocity, which the Yankees certainly have preached as well as any other team and, and trained velocity with their pitchers, um, I think there's a lot to be found here. Decent slider, probably a le- reliever at the next level. Um, but I think just the size and the strike throwing from that massive frame is what excites me about a 20th rounder who they signed for 150,000. And before I let you kind of put a ball on this, Peter, 
I think it's also notable that the Yankees signed every single player they took, which is more common in a 20 round draft, but um, it's still not hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I, with war wrecker, honestly, in, in following the draft and having the draft tracker up, seeing him get popped in the 20th, I almost, I, I kind of forgot about him until he got popped. And I was like, Oh, that's a, you know, if they can sign him, that's a really good pick in the 20th. You mentioned the, the six, eight frame pitch ability specialist. I, I, I got him a couple times in the Cape last summer where he was excellent um, for Orleans. It was a 208 ERA, 35 Ks to eight walks and 39 innings. I think what, what he brings to the table, his profile and his arsenal is going to play well against wood bats and play at its best against wood bats. It's, it's not kind of the, the pitch mix you see that, that I'd say generates the, the sexiest stats against, in the in the way that the college game is nowadays but i think against wood um he'll be rather effective and then another guy who is interesting to me in the 16th um is andrew landry out of southeast louisiana um pretty electric arm talent really quick arm fastball up to 98 with with carry through the zone um has spun off a, a slider i think is flash plus um the key for him is going to be um, the breaking ball um, refinement. Honestly, I don't, I don't know too, too much about him as a player, but in preparing for the podcast, he was a guy that, that piqued my interest a little bit. Um, again, out of Southeast Louisiana, started um, for the Golden Lions uh, this year. Um, I honestly wouldn't be shocked if he ends up um, in the bullpen professionally. I think that you take the chance to, to have him be a, a, a solid two pitch guy with the fastball and the slider. So um, mm-hmm. a couple of intriguing guys on day three. And as you mentioned, going, you know, signing all of your picks, that's, that's something to walk away being happy about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that is all for today. We've covered the AL East. Is there any team in, in this grouping that you like the best that you're most excited about? For me, Honestly, I would say the Rays. This- a lot of guys that I really like. So I'll go Rays. Yeah, honestly, at this point, and and their system right now is just an embarrassment of riches as is. Um, I got to go with Baltimore. Um, I really okay. like how they went college heavy. I really like a lot of the college guys. On top of that, um, as players, it's a really exciting blend of of archetypes, and I think that um, it's going to serve them well down the road. All right, so there you have it. For for us, at least, the Rays and, and the Orioles are the winners of this division. Uh, excited to break through the rest of them over the next few weeks with you, Peter. Uh, but is there anything you want to promote or uh, just just push to the listeners before we get out of here? Yeah, depending on when this podcast comes out, um, I am basically finished up with a top 100 transfers ranking um, at the college level that should be out later this afternoon. Um depending on, on when we want to publish it. But uh, by the time you're listening to it or soon after you're listening to this podcast, that will be out. Um, and then as we go forward um, into the next week, me and Jeff Ponce will be breaking down the top 50 Cape League players. Um, Los and I obviously continuing with the draft podcast on a weekly basis and then um, just some more college articles in the works. Yeah. Awesome stuff from from Peter on the way. Can't wait to see the transfer piece it's extremely extensive for me i'll have um, notes on 100 or so players that i saw on the high school circuit we'll have our 
high school showcase all-star team will come out. Uh, we'll also have the top players, top prospects from Team USA's college national team from the summer. So those are kind of the summer pieces I'm working on. Um, at some point, we'll be updating our 2024 list with all this summer information baked in. Not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but typically happens in the next few months or so. So I'm sure me and Peter will be digging through that list and, and keeping an eye on people who are popping up. Because, again, there, I, I would imagine there's going to be more movement throughout the cycle with this 2024 class than maybe any of the years that I've covered. So that'll be fun to do. So a lot of stuff coming from us. Obviously, the Major League season is still in full swing, even though college season is kind of wrapped up for a bit. Got a little bit of a break before fall ball gets rolling next month, I think, for most clubs. Um, so, yeah, we'll be back next week to talk more draft reviews. And maybe, who knows, there will be another uh, 2023 draftee that gets promoted to the majors that we can break down as well. Uh, don't cross your fingers for that. For Peter, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.